If you have your uh, Bible, please open it to Luke chapter 9. We will be looking at verses uh, 23 through 27. And this will be a two-week sermon, just so you know that. Two-week sermon. Unless you want to miss the football game, we can press on if you like. I want each of you to uh, reflect for a moment on all the activities you have going on in your life right now, from your job, from uh, school, for sports, your, your hobbies, you know, kid activities, your social life, friends, your marriage, your community engagement, your, your social media, political involvement, church involvement, or whatever. And, and so as you formulate this list, uh, there's one question I want you to answer to yourself. And, th- and this is the question. Did you count the cost before you said I do? Did you count the cost before you decided to do the things you are currently doing? Did you count the cost before you said yes to the things that are currently stressing you out? Did you do your homework? Did you ask the right questions? Uh, did you do your research? Did you make an informed decision? In Luke 14, uh, Jesus asked a large crowd of people, he, said, he asked them, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, would not sit down and first consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? You see, there is a cost attached to everything that we do in life. There's a cost. If you do A, it may cost you B. And so you have to sit down and you have to count that cost. And there's also a cost to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. There's a cost to follow him. But do you believe it? And if you do believe it, have you counted that cost? Now, there's a difference between a contribution and a cost. You see, we don't contribute anything for salvation. Christ gave all the contribution for that, his life, his death, his resurrection. So you contribute nothing, but it costs you everything. You contribute nothing, but yet it costs you everything. Now, you're not alone in this cost. Jesus is with you. He doesn't throw us into the deep end of the pool like some of our dads did and leave us there to figure it out. No, he's in the deep end of the pool with you. He's in the deep end of the pool with you. And because you have to remember that his presence in your life is an eternal, unbroken continuum that moves sovereignly throughout your life in every way possible. Because he is Emmanuel. He's Emmanuel even in a cause. He's with you. So if you have your Bible, open it to Luke 9, beginning in verse 23. And this is Christ speaking. And he said to, to, he said to all of them, if, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father, 
you know, the holy angels. For I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is God's word, not Alex's word, okay? It's not my word. So if you get your feelings hurt or something today, it's not my fault. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are merciful all the time. And your presence in our life is is the one constant thing that, that we can count on in this life. That no matter how bad it gets, no matter how low we may go or fall, you don't leave us. Someone needs to hear that today. No matter how often we fall, no matter how many mistakes we make, and we make them, you will never forsake us. You will never abandon us. You would never say, I'm done with you. You would never disinherit us. We are yours. We are your sons and daughters. And I, my prayer is that your spirit will move in, in all of our hearts today. And I pray that it will move in the hearts, uh, heart of anyone here who doesn't know you, that that person will come to saving faith today, not tomorrow, not next week, today. So, Holy Spirit, you are our counselor. You are the one who leads us into all truth. And I pray that you would do that today and that Christ would get the glory. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Our country is home to a lot of celebrities, Christian celebrities and non-Christian celebrities. And these celebrities, they have brands that they have built, or they may be building a brand, and they have platforms that allow them to speak into various issues. So they're famous, and they know they're famous. And people follow them by the masses on social media, some in person. They go to conferences and to listen to them speak and talk. They, line, they stand in line to get autographs and photos with their favorite celebrities. All celebrities have a fan base who likes them, follow them, and sometimes worship them. Jesus can relate to that. I can't, but Christ can. Because when he started his ministry in Galilee, Reports about him spread throughout all the area. Reports about this man from Nazareth who, 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 teaches, who has a certain teaching style, who works miracles, who's a healer, he's a preacher, and he even welcomes sinners. And so his celebrity status is growing. But here's the thing about Christ. He's not in ministry to build a brand and to build a platform. He's not about people simply liking him. He's not in the ministry game to, to have groupies and a large entourage and homeboys and people liking him and having wanting his autographs. He's in ministry for the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. To die for our sins, the redemption of all creation, and to gather a people unto himself. Jesus is not interested in simply having a fan base. He wants disciples. He wants disciples who count the cost and disciples who accept that cost. Remember, you, you contribute nothing, but it does cost you everything. So in Luke 9, in verses 23 and 27, Jesus tells a large crowd and his 12 disciples the same exact words because they need to hear it. He has a, a lot of people following him. They come from everywhere for every reason under the sun to come see and to hear and to be healed by this man from Nazareth. 
They're not counting the cost because all they see are the wonderful benefits to being around Jesus. Being with Jesus is like a gravy train. Just come on, come on, everybody, come get on the gravy train. Choo, choo, get on the train. Get your blessing, get your healing, get your benefits, get your free fish, get your loaves of bread. And so they come, they come, they come, and they come, and then Jesus hits the brakes. He stops the presses. And in verse 23, he says to all of them, I want each of you to know, all in Greek means all. Okay? It means all. He's speaking to everybody, regardless of race, class, gender, age. He's talking to all y'all. Your mama and them, your daddy and them, your sister and them, and your cousin and them. Everybody. In Mark 3, 34, it tells us that he calls the crowd to himself along with his disciples. And why is he calling them to himself? Because it's getting ready to go down. He's getting ready to have a coming to Jesus conversation with all of them and us this morning. He's going to tell them the truth, the hard but good truth. And he says to them, if anyone will come after me, that means if anyone wishes to come behind me, if anyone wishes to to be my disciple, if anyone desires to follow me, if anyone intends to come with me, then it's going to cost you something. Remember. You contribute nothing, but it does cost you everything. Jesus' words here is the beginning of a conditional statement. And so basically, if you desire A, then it's going to cost you B. So what's the cost, Pastor? I know that's a question you want me to answer. It's going to cost you a four-letter word. And that word is self. S-E-L-L. It costs you self. And have you counted that cost? Remember Jesus' question in Luke 14. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Or what king going out to encounter another king in war would not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Have you counted that cost? That's going to cost you self to be a disciple. People who have true saving faith in Jesus, they count this cost. They accept this cost. And they struggle to live it out with Emmanuel at their side. And others who do not have true saving faith, they walk away once the cost becomes a reality for them. Once they realize, oh, it does cost me something. It does cost me something. And that is self. It costs you self. And please understand, the cost of self doesn't mean you set self aside for a season. It doesn't mean you put self in a timeout chair. It means self dies. The cost is death to self. In his book, God's Pursuit of Man, A.W. Tozer writes, I have singled out this one enemy for consideration. But it's only one. There are many others. They, they seem to, to stand by themselves and, and, and have existence apart from each other, but that is only seeming. Actually, they are but branches of the same poison vine, growing from the same evil root. 
And they die together when the root dies. That root itself and the cross is the only effective destroyer. Self is the poison. Cross is the cure. But do you believe it? Romans 6, 6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we were no longer enslaved to sin. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if you wish to come after Jesus, if you would come after Jesus, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, then self dies, self is crucified, self is brought to an end. And those of you who have saving faith in Jesus, that has already happened. I hope you realize that. It's, it, it doesn't happen now that you've been a Christian for 20 years. It happened once you said, I believe. That's when it died. That's when it happened. We simply now have to live crucified, resurrected lifestyles with Emmanuel at our side, giving us the strength to do it. So do you live a crucified, resurrected lifestyle? The cost of discipleship is death to self. And Jesus' words in, in the second half of verse 23 communicates this truth. He gives them three imperatives, three commands that he fully expects his disciples to live by. Let me put it this way. There are three characteristics of self that must be crucified and put to death and something new is resurrected in their place when it dies when it's crucified something else is resurrected in its place the first cost of self is the crucifixion and death of self-sufficiency because the self-sufficient person is in control of their own life she doesn't need any help she doesn't need a savior. She's self-supporting. She's self-reliant. She's self-sustaining. She's able to stand on her two feet. But crying out loud, she's like, she's like Beyonce. Oh, it's just me, myself, and I. Solo ride until I die. Because I got me for life. I don't need a hand to hold. Even when the night is cold, I got that fire in my soul. It's just me, myself, and I. Self-sufficiency. So the self-sufficient person is his own savior his own shepherd. He tries to save his own life through his time, his talents, and his treasures. And Proverbs 14, 12 tells us, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, but in the end it's way is death. Self-salvation may seem right, it may feel right, it may look right, but in the end it always leads to death because no one can make atonement for their own sins. I don't care how self-sufficient they are. You can't do it. Only Jesus can do that. And he says in verse 24, whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. To lose your life for Christ's sake means you have surrendered to him in faith as Lord over your life and Savior of your soul. It means a life of self-sufficiency has been crucified, dead, and buried. 
and what is resurrected up in its place is a life of self-denial. A life of self-denial. And that's the first command he gives in verse 23. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him begin to deny himself. Self-denial is you releasing control over your life and your stuff and giving it all to Jesus. Is you coming to Jesus with open hands. Open hands. Not like this. One hand open and one hand behind your back, back tight. It's both of your hands. Open, saying, Lord, it's yours, not mine. It's giving him the keys to your present. It's giving him the keys to your future. It's no longer your plan. It's his plan, his agenda, and his wants. He becomes Lord of your time. He becomes Lord of your talents. He becomes Lord of your treasures. It's submitting and living under the Lordship of Christ in every area of your life. That's a life of self-denial and not a life of self-sufficiency. Paul says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 15, sorry, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14, 14 through 15, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that the one, ha- the one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might live, and no one will live for themselves, but live for him who for their sake was died and was raised. That's that life of self-denial. Self-sufficiency is crucified, is dead, is buried. That's the first cost of being a disciple. And when you surrender your life to him, that's what you die to. You die to that. You die to that way of life. You gave up control. And what is resurrected in its place is a life of self-denial and a life of dependency on Jesus for everything in your life. And he produces this in you. You don't produce this. You don't do this to yourself. He is Emmanuel with you, helping you to strive and live this sort of life. Remember, you're not in deep in the pool by yourself. You're not in deep in the pool by yourself. He's with you, teaching you how to swim. But do you believe that? The second cost, which is the hardest one for us to give up, the second cost is the crucifixion and death of self-preservation. The crucifixion and death of self-preservation. Self-preservation is a, is a basic human instinct because we all have a natural bent to protect ourselves from harm and death. And there's nothing wrong with protecting yourself from harm and death. If a car is coming and you stand in the middle of the road, you better move. You can say, I can do all things through Christ if you want to. You won't do that, I can tell you. The issue is when we live lives of self-preservation. Because a life that that, that is bent on self-preservation will live blindly to preserve worldly comforts, worldly pleasures, social status, political influence, a certain image of yourself, a certain way of life, your reputation, your rights, and your privileges. You will fight to preserve those things. And a life of self-preservation it's all about what profits us at this, even at the expense of other people. It's all about our gain. And we live life to protect that gain and that profit. And we want to preserve these things because our security and significance are tied up in them and not Jesus. And it's often hard to see that. 
often hard to see that. So ask yourself, are you, what are you preserving? Is it really for Jesus or is it really for you? Ask yourself that question. Is it really for Jesus or is it really for you? So that's not me, Pastor. I don't live that way. Yes, you do. I do, and you do as well. My, one of my favorite authors uh, is uh, T. Austin Sparks. And one of his books, he says, You and I must not think of the self-life only as something that's manifestly corrupt. There's a great deal done for God with the purest of motives that is done out for ourselves. There are many thoughts, ideas, judgments, which are lofty and beautiful, but they are ours. And if we did only know the truth, they're altogether different from God's. They're altogether different from God's. My friend Karen Ellis uh, recently wrote a piece for Christianity Today entitled Christianity Without an Adjective. Christianity Without an Adjective. It's a great piece that encouraged Christians to be careful about using an adjective to qualify what type of Christian they are. Because many Christians, even myself, we, we have a Christianity with an adjective. Adjectives like progressive or liberal, conservative or traditional, American or missional. What adjective do you put in front of Christian to modify and describe what kind of Christian you are? What adjective? I ain't going to put anybody on the spot. Just think about it. What adjective do you use to qualify what type of Christian you are? Christianity, please hear this. Christianity with an adjective can become self-preservation masquerading as biblical. Christianity with an adjective can become self-preservation masquerading as biblical. Christianity with an adjective becomes alternative facts Christianity because it makes us one-sided. It can become an idol. And we live our life to preserve the adjective, not our faith. To preserve the adjective and not our faith. Many Christians in our country, and some of us even here, don't realize that some of the ways we engage and respond to social, cultural, and political issues in this country is actually self-preservation masquerading as biblical and Christian. I said it because I see it in myself. And Jesus asked us in, in verse 25, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? The answer is nothing. In light of eternity, self-preservation profits us nothing because when we go to that grave, ain't nothing coming with us. In light of eternity, in light of, that's the question, in light of eternity, what really matters? What really matters? Self-preservation profits us nothing. And if you have saving faith in Jesus this morning, please know a life of self-preservation is dead. If you died to that life the day you came to Jesus. And that's the second cost to being a disciple. And so living a life of self-preservation for a Christian is folly. 
And Proverbs 26, 11 says, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Stop returning to the vomit of self-preservation. It is crucified. It is dead. It is buried. And what is resurrected in its place? Self-sacrifice is resurrected in its place. Because if you live a life of self-preservation, you ain't going to sacrifice nothing. Because you're too scared. You're too afraid. And you don't believe God is your Savior. You don't believe Jesus is Emmanuel. So you've got to hold on to everything yourself. Self-sacrifice is what is resurrected in the life of every believer. And all Christians are called to live that way. And so what does a life of self-sacrifice look like, Pastor? I'm glad you asked that question. And because Jesus tells us in verse 23, he says, If anyone will come after me, let him begin to take up his cross daily. Let him begin to take up his cross daily. I got to tell you, cross-bearing is not a life of self-preservation. Cross-bearing is a life of self-sacrifice. Now, in order to understand this, we got to see the cross in Jesus' cultural context, not ours. For us, we have the privilege of sending across his victory over sin and death. They don't see that right now. We even romanticize the cross. I mean, you got cross jewelry. You got cross T-shirts. You got people got crosses on their arms. You got churches with steeples with crosses on them. I got to tell you, that ain't happening in Christ's culture. That's not happening. That's not happening. Because this crowd... And even the 12 disciples, when, when, when Jesus said, take up your cross daily, they didn't have victory in mind. They, they're not romanticizing the cross. I got to tell you, there would be no vendors selling cross shirts three for $10 in this culture. Why? Because the cross represents something that no one wants to be associated with. That's why. Because they realize, they're thinking, this brother said what? I got to do what daily? Take up my cross? Well, I guess it's time to go. I'm done with my fish. I think I'm going to go home. Thank you, Jesus, for the fish and bread. But I'm going to go back to my way of life. Because you know what they know? They know in ancient Roman culture, the cross is a symbol of death and execution. It's a symbol of shame and torture. It's a display, a, a, a physical display of one's death. And it's, sometimes it's hard for us to actually comprehend that because we're not living in that time. But they know exactly what it means. A person had to actually carry their cross on their back to the place that where they were going to be crucified. And that person then is nailed to that cross. And please know, that person suffered long before they actually died. It's a horrible way to die, to be crucified. And so, is that what Christ calling us to do? Is, 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 that what, is that what that means? Leon Morris, in his commentary on Luke, he says, the disciples had probably seen a man take up his cross. They knew what it meant. When a man from one of their villages took up a cross and went off with a little band of Roman soldiers, he was on a one-way journey. He will not be back. He will not be back. To lift up your cross and carry it means 
you are welcoming self-sacrifice, shame, hardships, persecution that may come because of your faith in Christ. Cross-bearing isn't a life of self-preservation. It's a life that's willing to sacrifice worldly comforts, worldly pleasures, social status, political influence, a certain image, a certain way of life, reputations and rights and privileges for the sake of Christ. That's what it means. I know you're like, man, this is hard. I, I had to write it. What does it mean to me? Tozer writes, again, the cross where Christ died also became the cross where his apostles died. The loss, the rejection, the shame belong both to Christ and, and all who are his very truthfully. The cross that saves them also slays them. And anything short of this is pseudo faith and not true faith at all. The cross that saves you is also a cross that slays you. And Christ isn't commanding us to, to, to use, to add adjectives to our Christian walk. He's commanding us to lift up our cross and carry that cross daily. He's commanding us to attach that cross to our Christian life daily. If you are a cross-bearing Christian, you won't ever need an adjective to qualify what type of lot Christian you are. It will show in the way you live. If you are a cross-bearing Christian, you won't need to qualify what type of Christian you are. It will show in the way you live and function in this world. It will show it. People will see it. You see, cross-bearing isn't, mean, isn't always functioning on the top of society. It's not functioning from a celebrity platform. It's not always functioning from the limelight. The, lim- the limelight. Cross-bearing isn't functioning out of a position of worthy power and dominance. Cross-bearing may mean at some point you may, be, you may be a minority. It may mean you may operate on the fringes and margins of the culture and society. Cross-bearing means people on both sides of an issue will hate you. Did you get that? Cross-bearing means People on both sides of an issue may hate you. That's what it means. Or just let me put it this way. Cross-bearing Christians sometimes agree with Republicans. Sometimes they agree with Democrats. But they would never agree with both of them fully. That's what it means. Because cross-bearing Christians do not fully align themselves with any government structure, system, movement, or group. We have one foot in, one foot out, because when we see things we don't think is right, we're going to bounce out. That's what it means. We don't fully entrust ourselves to anything. We have to be like Christ. In Luke 2, 23 and 25, listen to what this says about Jesus. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Christ on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Why didn't he entrust himself to the people? Because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about a man, for he himself knew it was in a man. So as we function in this life, as self-sacrificing Christians, as, we, as a cross-bearing Christians, we don't fully entrust ourselves to anyone that has not bowed down to Jesus. And sometimes you don't want to entrust yourself to them. We have one foot in, one foot out when it comes to the way we function in this society. Again, 
Karen Ellis. I love Karen Ellis. She says, Christians are most powerful, not when we're countercultural, but when we're other cultural. Not apolitical, but other political. Our power lies in engaging the culture truthfully and lovingly on Christ's terms, refusing to the assimilation of, of acceptance. Historically, the church's the true church values faithfulness over dominance. Faithfulness over dominance. A cross-bearing life calls us to be otherworldly, other cultural, other political. Because at the end of the day, our true allegiance is to Jesus. And anything that does not have saving faith in Jesus will leave you hanging when it comes down to it. When it all comes to an end, when everything hits the fan, the things that you stand with, they will leave you hanging. Because things, worldly things, still have not bowed down to Jesus. The spirit of the world, as Tozer says, the spirit of this world, at times it will love justice. At times it will love the poor. At times it will want to do what is right. But at the end of the day, when it, when it comes down to surrendering to Christ, it will never do it. You got to know that. So as you lock arms with things that are not, not Christian, one foot in, one foot out. Because at the end of the day, they don't agree with you fully. One foot in, one foot out. Cross-bearing Christians. And when you do that, people on both sides are going to hate you. Because you won't choose a side. I'm on Christ's side. I'm on Jesus' side. And sometimes... Cross-bearing Christians also realize sometimes I give up what may benefit me politically because it does not honor Christ. Guess what that means? Self-sacrifice. A friend of mine, Adam Tisdale, he told, we meet once a week to do sermon prep together. And this week he, he said to me that the Christian life sometimes seems like we're losing. He said, the Christian life sometimes seems like we're losing, but we're not. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 8 and 10, we are treated as imposters and yet are true. As unknown, yet well known. As dying, and behold, we live. As punished, yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. That's the Christian life. That's the cross-bearing life. And I want each of you to know that you're not alone in this. Life of self-sacrifice, a, a cross-bearing life. You're not alone in a, in a life of, of self-denial. Emmanuel is with you in the cause. We're not orphans. We're not, we're not without a, a father. He's with us. He doesn't throw us in the deep end of the pool. Again, I tell you to figure it out yourself. He doesn't do that. Christ knows what it's like to live a life of self-sacrifice. He sacrificed himself so that you could have everlasting life. You know, before you became a Christian, there was an executive order, order issued against you by God that banned you from his presence. Did you know that? Ban you from having a relationship with him? 
ban you from worshiping him, ban you from doing anything for him. And guess what? There was nothing you could do to remove that order. You can march, you can cry, you can protest, all you want to. That order was in place. It was under you. And we got to tell you, the order is still in place. You have to be removed from under the order. And when Christ came, when he came, he did what you couldn't do. He removed you from under that order. How did he remove you? He died in your place. The cross that Christ carried was your cross. That was your cross. That was your cross. That beating he's got, that beating was for you. Those nails that went to his hands and his feet were your nails. So I'm telling you, he knows what it's like to have a life of self-sacrifice. He knows what it's like. So I'm not just giving you a watered-down gospel. I'm telling you, he knows from personal experience what it's like to live a life of sacrifice. Well, he sacrificed everything for you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that by his poverty, you might become rich. What does that mean, Alex? That means Jesus was in the Hamptons, and he came down to Huntsville. That's what it means. He was living it up. He was in glory. He had his best life now. And then he realized where you were. He said, I'm going to leave this behind because there's people that I love who need a redeemer. There are people that I love who, who need a savior. There are people who are banned from my God's kingdom because of, of sin. And I'm going to come down here and I'm going to make it right. He left the riches of glory and came down here. Please know that. His poverty isn't just down on the cross. Part, his poverty was being created in the incarnation, being found in the image of man. That was not his finest moment. That was humiliation for him. To be formed in the image of man. Jesus isn't calling you to do something that he hasn't already done for you. He isn't calling you to do anything he hasn't already done for you. You say, why should I live a life of self-sacrifice? Because that's what Christ did for you. Where would you be if he didn't do it? Where would we be if he didn't do it? If he never came, we'd be on a, a train to hell. Where would we be? Stephen Wu, a friend of mine, is a pastor in, in New York, a PCA minister. He says, God isn't just Emmanuel, God with us. He's also the God who is for us. The God who is for us. Psalm 56.9 says, this I know, that God is for me. See, Jesus is with you in the cause, and he's for you in the cause. He wants you to live this way. He's going to give you what you need. He'll be with you, and he's for you in a life of self-denial. He's with you and for you in a life of self-sacrifice. The question is, do you believe it, or do you simply live by sight? Or do you live by faith? Do you believe it? There's a hymn that says, When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss 
and pour contempt on all my pride. See from his head and his hands and his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet? Our thorns compose so rich a crown. Oh, wonderful cross. Oh, wonderful cross. Bids me come and die that I may truly live. Oh, wonderful cross. Oh, wonderful cross. All who gather here by grace, draw near and bless your name. But do you believe it? Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father, Jesus, thank you that you live a life of self-denial. You live a life of self-sacrifice. Thank you for that. For those of us who possess faith, we have that because you live such a life. You died, you were resurrected, and you ascended into glory. Even right now, you still intercede on our behalf. And so be Emmanuel with us as we go back out and and function as as people who live a life of self-denial and people who live lives of self-sacrifice for your glory and for your sake. It's scary. It's hard. Because I don't want to do it all the time. It's easy for me to come in here and preach this stuff, but living it out, man, it's hard. Really hard. But that's why we have the Spirit. That's why we have the Spirit. Because we're not here to do it in our own strength. And I pray, Holy Spirit, empower your people, empower, empower the bride of Christ. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Please stand as we close our service. <laughs>